the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, with your co-hosts, Ed Lay and Thomas Mulhern, this is Global Denmark. Hello, and welcome back to the Global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. Well, we recently had the pleasure of sitting down with CEO of Startup 42 Media, Mr. Alex Feldman. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the key to startup succeeding, understanding if you're running a company or a business, being mindful of the impact of scaling, currency and value creation, also with relation to startup valuations, tech barbecue, human beings, cyborgs, and technology, attracting and retaining expat millennials, and much, much more. Without further ado, we bring you Alex Fellman. are back. I am here as always with my co-host, Mr. Ed Lee. Ed, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm starting to regret my flip-flop choice. But other than that... Who wears flip-flops in winter? English people. English people wear flip-flops in winter? It's the only way people know that you're English. Oh, I thought it was the pink color you were regretting, not the flip-flop. All right, on that note, and uh, we are here with today's special guest, Mr. Alex Feldman. Hope I said that right. I mean, I think it's a fairly easy name, but short. Yes, yes, I think it is. You're not like me. Uh, I don't know if I should mention this or not, but I've pretty much been banned from saying names on my show. So. Is the D silent? Oh, I don't have a D, actually, in my name. Would you like one? We, we, got, we got rid of it. I was about to say, my family's Jewish, so I was going to do a self-deprecating Jewish joke. Uh, we're too cheap, cheap for the D. <laughs> we took rid of it. Is that kind of humor okay on this? <laughs> it's, it's acceptable. It's acceptable. I mean, you've alienated half of Denmark now. I, I feel like I'm Jewish, so I get away with, with making fun of my own people. So. Sure. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, <laughs> let's, uh, let's dive right in. Sure. You are the uh, executive director of Startup 42 Media. Maybe you could tell us what the key is for startup companies to succeed. Sure. I mean, you're mentioning one of my more recent projects, which is a company I started called Startup 42. But to give a bigger overview, I pretty much present myself as a startup professional where um, I've been an investor, I've been a founder, I've been an early employee, I've been an advisor, a board member. I've kind of been every stakeholder you can imagine. And, and I think some of the biggest things about it is that two things. One is being really, really passionate about the problem you're trying to solve and realizing that as a startup, it's not about you. It's about the customers and the people that you're helping. Um, and that's why on, I mean, Startup 42 Media is a company that we started and one of our big focuses there is our first kind of flagship show is called Love the Problem. And really we're trying to highlight like, hey, what are the problems that people are passionate about? Because we realized actually in the ecosystem, uh, both me and my partner are both investors, that one of the, the actual big keys is, is people who are passionate about a problem and experts about a problem. Yet there's not really a platform to highlight that. That when you go to tech conferences or, or you see the, the movies, you see you know Zuckerberg and you see like the, the big tech specialist or you see the company or you see the people, but, but we find that actually... You know, being an entrepreneur is not easy, and it's a difficult journey. And unless you're really passionate about what you're doing, you're not gonna you're not gonna stay in it. Um, and I was talking to someone; it's it's sort of like repeatedly getting punched in the face. And if you're not really passionate about what you're doing, you're gonna be like, yeah, I'm 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 sick of being punched in the face. But if you're like a boxer, you go, okay, I need to be punched in the face to do my job, and that's part of the job. And then I think that's one 
one key aspect is, is having this passion and that's what allows you to sort of continue your journey and, and be successful. I think the second thing is, is really understanding that you as an individual have limits and you don't scale. There, there's, a, there's only so much one person can do. And because of that, then you need to put, put together the right team and, and get people to support you and, and get people on, on board. And, and if you can't really get a good group together, then let's say as an individual, you can have a company, but you might not necessarily build a business. And I think you really need a team to build a proper business. Um, and you can have, you know, drop shipping is a big thing right now. And I'm actually possibly starting a, coming back around, I might be starting a drop shipping company with my sister and a friend of mine to sell little memorabilia, t-shirts, postcards, et cetera, around Jewish puns. My sister and I, we've been doing holiday cards. I don't know, you guys know challah? It's a Jewish bread. Um, so we've been doing holiday cards. And, and so we've, we've been doing that and my sister, she's artistic. So she's been doing a lot of the design. I've been helping her with kind of the concepts and we're like, we should actually just, just do this. And that's like a company, right? Like we can make some money off it, but that probably isn't going to be a thing. But if we wanted to make that like a big business, we would need additional people. We'd, we need to start to build up a team. And I think that's sort of, let's say more of what I'm doing with like startup 42 media. We want to build like this big media company, this big media platform. And we're going to bring on the proper partners to do that. And I think those are... The two, I think, really keys to success is, is are you really passionate about the people that you're trying to, to help and solve a problem for? And are you willing to bring on a group of people and realizing that, hey, I, I can't do this alone, that I need support, I need help. One of the like incubator startups, they did a study that looked at like the best founder teams are actually teams of three. And, and those were the ones that were most successful because you had the sort of the most balance and the most kind of combination of skills and, and, and techniques to, to really pull it together. Um, and that was better than a, a one-person team or a two-person team or even better than a four-person team. And so it was kind of a, a really interesting dynamic. Okay. Three gives you that kind of magical I think of it diversity to imbalance? The- I think it gives sort of the right balance. And also, um, I mean, coming back around, right, I, I learned this in, in high school, three is kind of the, the magic number psych- psychologically. And the reason it's a magic number psychologically is, like, let's say, you know, there's three of us in this room, but let's say it was just me and you, Thomas. Mm-hmm. If we had a, a disagreement, there'd be almost no way for either of us to know who's right. You would say your thing, I would say my thing, and we'd go back and forth, and who knows. But once you bring Ed into the picture, all of a sudden we have sort of a third, maybe neutral, maybe not, person who can go in and go, oh, actually, as a third person coming to, into the conversation, and maybe it's not you know directly one way or the other, but you know I see reality more like Alex or more like Thomas, mm-hmm. right? And so that's actually, from a psychological point of view, significant. Mm-hmm. Because you can actually start to say, like, okay, we now have an extra data point that confirms or rejects one point of view or another. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and you can there, there's a simple majority with three and exactly. even number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and that's sort of the, but that's the first number that you can do that. You can't really do that with one. You can't do that with two. It's a big part of actually uh, what I do in companies is one of the ways to make sure that everybody communicates better is to make sure that there are no two personal conversations related mm-hmm. to work. All conversations need to be three people. What I heard there was a couple things. The key to starting something up is identifying a problem for your potential market and being passionate about that. Is that correct? I mean, I think that's one of the big things. I think identifying it is, is, is one of the first things, but I think I would argue there's an abundance of problems out there. I mean, this might be a little tangent, but I, I talk to a lot of people about the SDGs. Right. Put out by the UN. There's 17 of them, but within the 17, there's something like uh, 250 sub goals. So there's like all these things that we're trying to work on to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. 
And some people see that and they get superly overwhelmed. Sure. And they go, oh my God, the world's falling apart and we're not going to do it. And, and I try to be like, hey, hold off. Like, basically all you need to do as an individual is find one of those things and get passionate about it and go like, do you care about the ocean? Do you care about the air? Do you care about health? Do you care about poverty? Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Find that one thing and then trust that there's someone else in the world that's equally passionate as you are about that, about the other stuff. And if we have enough equally passionate people, because I, I think even if, if you do find a problem that is like interesting, if it's not something that you really truly care about, at some point when the road gets tough, you're, you're not going to stay in it. And, and I think there's enough problems out there that you can probably find a problem that you actually care about and work on that. Often, for example, I, I tend to find some of the best entrepreneurs are the ones who are solving their own problems. Yeah. They sort of see like, okay, this frustrates me and I want a solution for it. And they just build it. Yeah. I think that's some of the best ones that I tend to see. And because and, you know, they know it, they become experts, they know the difficulties and they really care about it because they, they actually want it for themselves. And a lot of them don't even care if it becomes successful. Yeah. Let's go, I just want to have this because it makes my life easier. Yeah, I remember when we talked to Jesper Lupendel, yeah. and we, could, we mapped out that actually every time he ran into a problem that he would uh, create an innovative solution to work out the problem for himself and then scale it for the benefit of others. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what you're hinting at here. Especially in this day and age, it's so easy to connect to other people around the world. And then a lot of people start to think like, oh, I'm the only person that thinks that way. But realistically, I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet there's probably a significant number of people who have similar problems. We're, we're a lot more similar than a lot of people like to think. Mm-hmm. So a lot, if you have that problem, probably someone else has that problem. And unlike in the past where it would be, you know, let's say every, in every city five people had that problem. In the past, you'd only be able to find those five people. But now in this day and age, right, if we're looking at, I don't know, the top 200 cities, then you can find 1,000 people. And through the Internet, you can literally find all of them. And yes, it's kind of hard to, let's say, make a business on five people. Yeah. But you could probably make a business on 1,000 people. It's a, have you read 1,000 True Fans? By I, I, I think I read the... He, he wrote like a, a post on yeah, it. That's it. That's yeah, so I read the post. Is, is the post. Yes, I, I did read 1,000 True Fans. I didn't intentionally reference that, but I, I do know it and I, sure. I do talk about it and, and it's something that's quite important to me is I think entrepreneurs initially you know, think of like, oh, I need to build the next Facebook or, or Google or whatever, but you don't really need to. Like you can build a perfectly sustainable business that's considerably smaller and as long as you're you're solving a problem for the for your target group, yeah, and for the people who are passionate about it, um, and as long as you keep doing that, and, and certainly I mean if you solve one problem, then that problem disappears. And as long as you keep kind of innovating and being like, okay, what else can I do for those people, and what other problems do they have, and, and kind of expanding what you do, I mean you could probably do that forever. I mean it's a big problem with people's second business, right? It? If they've done something big, ordinarily didn't start with a big idea. It just started with a, an idea yeah. of I want to scratch my own itch, and the second business is how do I create something bigger than the last one? And it ultimately ends up being problematic. Sure. Somehow, something that I've seen um, is that, let's say, through the process of, of growing and scaling the business to that size, it sort of changes the way you think about things. And so you kind of lose your roots into, okay, what, what was hap- actually happening uh, in the startup phase of it. But one thing that was really interesting, um, we were kind of talking before a little bit. Uh, so Startup 42 Media, we did something really cool at Tech Barbecue where we, we, we had a stage there and we were doing podcasting live, almost like like radio. And we brought on, a, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Bob Young, uh, founder of Red Hat. Now he has this company called Lulu. Mm. And basically he talked about, he really, really likes the startup part. And Red Hat went like public and he became a multi, multi-millionaire. And once he became public and whatnot, he, he realized, he's like, wait a second, like I've outscaled the company for myself. And this has gotten to a point where it's bigger than what like I like doing and whatnot. And so he left. 
And he basically said, no, I, I really like the, you know, taking a small idea and growing it. That's my thing. I don't really like having this machine and just, just kind of making sure the machine keeps turning and so on and so forth. And so he basically, uh, I think he still, I forget exactly because I think he still owns or whatever, but he very much stepped out of, of Red Hat and is no longer involved because he basically scaled the company past himself in his own interest. Now you mentioned that there's this distinction between a company and a business, and the business is when you have the infrastructure to be able to scale. I mean, is that something that you should go into a startup knowing that, okay, I want this to be a company or I want this to be a business based upon the market, or is it based upon... What, what would you so, look at So, I mean, advice? my personal opinion on the matter is you should think about it based on what you want. And that's, that's some of the thing is, is I think... Because you want to solve the problem, yeah. essentially. Well, I, so ideally, you want to solve the problem, but, but that's actually not everyone's necessarily interest. Okay. Right? Maybe some people... That's sort of the thing, and I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with this. I mean, lots of people go into entrepreneurship for different reasons. Some people want to be their own boss. Some people think, and I think this is, depending on the type of business or company you build, this might be a false assumption, but some people go because they go, oh, I have more flexible hours, and so I can spend like more time with my kids. Or, And you might be able to do that. It kind of depends on the businesses that you want to build. Um, so, so you have these different reasons. So I think you, what you really need to do is... is Get self-aware of like, why am I going into this business? Am I doing it for the customer? And I think those tend to be the best ones. But am I doing this for the customer? Am I solving the problems, et cetera? I think those provide the most value. But I mean, you can have a perfectly good, I don't know, consultancy. Uh, I was talking about the drop shipping company. Mm-hmm. I mean, those aren't necessarily going to scale to be huge things. But they could be enough to support yourself. They can, you know, and if that's your objective, then there's, there's no real problem with that. I've been sort of thinking and talking about this a lot. I think the big thing is is more about a matter of being honest and understanding what your ambitions are and making sure your actions match that. And and I think that's the real difference in, in kind of what we were talking about here. When you're getting into this, you need to look in the mirror and go, do I legitimately want to build the next Facebook or whatever? And if that's the case, then then there's a whole pathway for you. But I think you need to be sort of honest to the world and to yourself that that, that is what you're doing and what you want to be doing. And I think where there's a disconnect between your ambitions and your action is when you start to run into problems. I mean, I agree totally with you, uh, with what you're saying. And I think what what we tend to do is we see this title, entrepreneur, and we think one way. And, and I've been there where I've looked at uh, uh, entrepreneur and categorized it as an enterprise entrepreneur, where I keep my income low and I scale, 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 do myself out of the job that I love, which is being an expert entrepreneur and I've flipped it around now to for my own business not to be enterprise so I'm not looking to train up lots of people to do what I do so that I can slowly remove myself so that I can make an app so that people can implement I want to have these conversations and I want to go talk to the CEO and I want to be inside that company and then my team becomes what the CEO does with their company or the company that I go into well for me it's one of those things that it I always find it kind of interesting that no one sort of thinks about, it. I mean, that we've always had these like, you know, high expertise kind of skilled professions that have always been entrepreneurial. Think of lawyers, accountants, these types of professions have always been extremely entrepreneurial. You have your own practice, you have to build it up. That's what they do. But no one really talks about them when we talk about the ecosystem and, sure. and, and kind of in the, what you're talking about, you know, they talk about the enterprise and so on and so forth. But I mean, if you build up a successful law practice, that's an entrepreneurial yeah. thing. Very good point. And, and, and no one's talking about that side of it. And they've been doing that kind of stuff for, I don't know, centuries. 
there has been entrepreneurship, like we're talking about it now for a while, but, but I mean, these types of profession, professions and craftsmen and so what, whatnot, you know, even someone like, let's say, a plumber or, or a, a, a tailor or, or, or those types of, of crafts, I mean, you more or less are entrepreneurial. You, you have to make your own business. You have to find your own clients. You have to provide value, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you're not going to make tons of money off that, but you're certainly probably going to have enough to support your family and your kids and, and so on and so forth. That's one of the things is I think it tends to get lost in the conversation. I think that's a shame. Um, and I, th- I think there should be a bring it back to highlighting that, oh, no, there is this other way that's also very entrepreneurial. And that is a perfectly reasonable and acceptable and successful path for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people would actually be happier with that path yep, personally. Absolutely. And, and I think we're, we're right now in a kind of entrepreneurial hype s- sequence of like, sure. oh, everyone wants to to become a, a unicorn or, or I don't know if you've heard that there's a new term that they're throwing around which is called a minotaur. I don't know if you heard about this one. <laughs> no, come on. So a minotaur is a private company that's not worth more than a billion that has raised more than a billion dollars. I thought it was a fictional creature that lived on Crete. Um, <laughs> They've been lying to me. Yeah. I, I would argue most of these companies are probably fictional creatures that might live on Crete so I, I think it's I think it's possibly fitting. Could we pivot to that then? There's a lot of praise around um, we've just raised this much or we've just raised that much and I don't want to take that away from the people that have done that but there's a flip side, right? There's. I mean, okay. This might be a, a longer tangent, a longer part of this conversation but I, I think what, to me what this comes down to the fact is that essentially money is meaningless and if we understand the fact that money is meaningless and that we're essentially printing it all over the place, and if you understand about like factional reserve banking and the fact that the banks don't actually need to have, it's essentially they need to have like 10% of what they say they have in actual assets. And they can just like on a computer screen be like, oh, we have a million dollars? Well, we actually have 10. L- look at factual reserve banking. I'm probably butchering the exact structure of it, but, but more or less the way that we set up the system, it's called, um, I want to say it's called S2 currency. There's like S1 currency that's... Per- printed by Federal Reserves, but then we have that, I think it's called S2, which then says that, let's say the Federal Reserve loans to a bank, X, that bank can say that they can give out nine times as much. So they're they're basically just creating money out of of thin air. I think part of the idea around this, which I think is, is good in principle, is that with something like capitalism, theoretically what's happening is as the economy is going, we should be creating value. But if we're not creating more money as the value is being created, all of a sudden we have the same amount of money to buy much more valuable things. Mm-hmm. So we need to be producing money to keep up with the amount of value that's being created. To me, it sounds kind of crazy that the right ratio is 9 to 1. That seems extremely high to me. Because that's basically suggesting that somehow the market is producing like 9 times the amount of value and we need to be injecting 9 times the amount of money into the system to, to balance it. And that sounds... I think that's absurd. One of the consequences, I think, kind of bring that tangent back and kind of sure. trying to give this as the, the framework, is that there's so much money floating around the system that needs to go somewhere. And one of the places that it's going is to start with valuations. So it needs somewhere to go. And what you're seeing, and, and one of the things I'm involved with is more on the investment background, and, and my family has an investment firm, is one of the things you're seeing is that more and more let's say financial assets are basically, you know, we're in negative interest rate environment, mm-hmm. are basically not having any return or close to 0% return. So you're starting to look at, all right, well, what actually might make us money? And venture is one of the few spaces that might make you money. Or you can get a good ROI. Yeah, exactly. If you sort of understand this, and I think what's happening now, and I actually wrote an ar- article about this on LinkedIn, 
is I think you're getting sort of these artificial valuations. So then it becomes almost like a game of musical chairs in, in the sense of people are passing the buck of things. And this is coming back to what I was saying before, is you're seeing a lot of companies that don't actually provide value to the market and they are not actually like really selling stuff to customers. And they're basically only being funded by investors. And what the investors are basically doing is getting in at different stages and basically hoping that they can pass it to a higher up investor, to a higher up investor. And at some point, it's going to stop. And at some point, whoever ends up with the potato in their hand with the investment realizes, oh, wait, I'm carrying a giant investment of shit. Yeah, like the mortgage (laughs) crisis. Like the mortgage crisis. Yeah, it's exactly like the mortgage crisis. And so I kind of think actually, well, two different things on on that note. Uh, Whenever we get into the next financial crisis, I think it's actually going to be extra hard because I think we're going to have a collapse of the venture market. We're going to have sort of a renewal of the dot-com bust. It's, it's really overinflated. But I think what we're, what's also going to happen is that the way that I sort of see these, these, these sort of economic cycles is basically we, we build up a lot of garbage in the ecosystem, and then when it busts, we kick them out. Unfortunately, in the last economic crisis, we tried to kick out the garbage, and the garbage fought back, and the garbage won. And we should have kicked a, and if, if people aren't aware of what I'm talking about, we should, probably should have kicked the banks out of the economy because they, they, in my opinion, fucked up. And under normal capitalist society, when you fuck up on that nature, you get kicked out of the economy. You, you fail. And, yeah. and that's just the way it works. And they that's, got bailed out. And they got bailed out. And the thing is, is they're basically back to doing exactly what they were doing before the crisis again. And, and they basically were like, well, if we're not being punished for this and they're not going to let us fail, then, then they've basically been... They see it as almost like a mandate to continue operating the way they did. Sure. And so the way that I sort of see this is when the next one comes... Which goes against the nature of capitalism, that you're yeah. inherently punished if you can't deliver on results. And if you don't provide value to the market, then the market doesn't pay you. I think when the next one comes, we're going to have to kick out two economic cycles worth of trash. And I think that's going to be especially hard for the economy in general. And is there, in your opinion, a time projection of when you think this might happen? I mean, most, let's say, economists and, and investors and people that I talk to are expecting it within the next two to three years. I mean, people are kind of expecting it, which honestly I think might actually drag it out a little bit longer. Unlike the last time where people were like, oh, it's never going to happen. Now people some, are changing their actions. Some people are kind of being like, okay, as we're actually in, the, uh, I think in July, we passed the date for the longest upcycle ever. So we've been in the midst of the biggest, longest upcycle ever. So now people are being like, okay, Instead of being caught off guard, let's start prepping because we, we think it's coming. So I think some people, for example, are starting to hoard cash. There's I forgot who said this. I want to attribute it to Andrew Carnegie, but I could be wrong about that. He said something along the lines of, it's a field day when there's blood on the streets. When the economy collapses and everything's going to become super cheap, so the people who are hoarding cash are just going to swoop in and buy everything up sure. at an extreme discount. Yeah, I'm going to throw some things out there. I bet you... Isn't that what Trump did in the 70s in Manhattan? I'm going to throw this out there. I bet you when this happens, uh, I'm not a financial advisor, so take everything I tell you with a grain of salt and go talk to your actual financial before doing this. I bet you a company like Uber will be 10 cents on the dollar when the financial crisis happens. Almost guaranteed. Denmark doesn't have to worry about that because they already kicked Uber out. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm just but, but I'm yeah. saying if you want to take over Uber and whatnot, when the financial crisis happens, I bet you they're going to be 10 cents on the dollar. Well, we're going to have you back on at that time. Yeah, right. <laughs> see if you're a Nostradamus. Uh, we'll see. And we're all going to buy Uber stocks maybe at that point. <laughs> yeah, we can do it live. <laughs> I want to pivot back a little bit. You mentioned that you um, you just did this podcasting at the Tech Barbecue. Mm-hmm. First of all, for our audience, what is Tech Barbecue and what is important in the tech world right now for the 
average citizen consumer to know about? Those sound like very different questions, but yeah. but um, first of all, what is Tech Barbecue? So let, let's focus on Tech Barbecue. Uh, tech Barbecue is Denmark's biggest tech conference. This year we had I think over eight thousand people, more or less. I was talking to That's the a lot of hot dogs and burgers. Theoretically, that would be a lot of hot dogs and burgers, but unfortunately, which I was gonna say, I yell at the CEO. I don't actually yell at the CEO, but I kind of get the CEO about. You journal about. I, yeah, <laughs> I angrily blog the CEO, like like on Twitter about the CEO. No, um, it used to be an actual barbecue, but they've kind of moved a little bit away from that. We do have some like vendors who are grilling, but but it's not really a focus anymore, which I think is a mistake. I don't. I have a bit of a marketing branding mind, and if I were the one running things, I would be doubling down on that because I think it's a great brand, and they are. They already have the brand, and they're established as that brand. And I think it would be a great doubling down for them. But it's, it's really, really interesting because it's, it's, at this point, like the third, either third biggest or the one with the third best reputation in Europe after things like Slush and Web Summit, which are considerably bigger. I mean, Web Summit, I think it's 70,000 people. But it's, it's pretty much considered to be right after that. And just to bring it together, they have multiple stages, great speakers, um, it's just highlighting the ecosystem. And overall, it's, just, it's a really good event. I, I do recommend it. It's a lot of fun. And if you're into the tech space, I do recommend going. For an average person, editor, editor I, that uh, wants to know what, what's going on in this tech world. You know, you read about it if you're not involved in it. What is... What affects... Is it oh, everything? Is it nothing? What, what should people be mindful of? Uh, that's a really... I mean, there's a lot of different things to talk about that. I want to talk about it from this angle. I think the biggest thing that you, that you should know is that, for the most part, most people are already living in the future. And that we're already living in a, in a world where we are completely integrated with tech. And most people are actually, in my opinion, already cyborgs. And I know that's a pretty bold statement. Yeah, you're going to have to unpack that. Yeah, I know that's a pretty <laughs> bold statement. But most people are already cyborgs. And let's, if you understand what a cyborg is, it's basically the merging of the human being and a computer. Where there's a symbiotic relationship with a human and a computer. And the thing about it, which most people don't think about, of how we've already merged with computers is we all have this thing in, in all our pockets called a smartphone. And basically at this day and age, you couldn't separate it from an individual. Like, like people will have panic attacks if they separate their smartphone because it's actually become an extension of who we are. When I was going through my undergrad and I was watching, you know, by this point, the internet's been around for about a decade and we had these things like Wikipedia and, and websites and so on and so forth. We actually, 15, 20 years ago, actually had to remember things. If you wanted to know... Friends phone numbers, give them a call. Friends phone numbers. I still remember my yes. phone numbers. <laughs> I mean, things like that, but, but simple things of like, who are the presidents of various countries? Yeah. You would have to like, go somewhere, research it, learn it, and then like, remember. Yeah. Yeah. If I wanted to know the president of any country right now, like, certainly it's not in my head, but I could tell you within five seconds. Yeah. I'd, I'd go to Google and, and then be like, president of X. Yeah. And I'd have that information on their fingertips. In my opinion, I think we've essentially outsourced our memories to the cloud. Most people think that's like a bad thing, and I would, I would argue otherwise. I think that's actually a super cool thing. A, because now we have way more memory than we've ever had before. And B, now we don't have to use brain resources because our brain, let's say, has limited resources and space and, and energy on remembering shit. Then, Ed, why, why is there such high levels of stress if we have all this extra memory and we, you know, we can have to the cloud? Well, that's, that's a funny thing, right? I mean, our memory primarily exists to move us towards the things that give us pleasure and away from the things that give us pain. So if we summon up some sort of emotion, it triggers 
a memory to say, hey, do more of this or, or do less of this. And, and we remember facts so that we can say, I remember this fact, right? Not because we need to remember that fact, but so we can bring it up in conversation and go. But, uh, but I think you're right. I mean, uh, if I think about what I did today, mm -hmm. I saw a client in the UK before I came in because I did it, I'm able to do it on video. I interacted with four clients. I used my phone to get on the train. I bought myself a coffee with my phone. I shared a couple of things on, on social media with my phone. I, you know, it's, I've had what would have been, in the first two hours of today, what would have been 10 years ago, a full working day you know, that I wouldn't have been able to, to do before. Sure. Smartphones. Absolutely. But I think touching on your point, you're talking about like why are people really stressed out? But I think the thing, and actually this was exactly what I was going to bring out, and this is why I think people are stressed, is that because this has become, let's think of it, let's think of it this way. Let's imagine the phone was an organ. And my, my organ is, is ringing, right? So let's imagine the phone was an organ. And, and let's compare it to an organ like your heart. Your heart is constantly sending you signals, but you're not conscious of them. It's constantly telling you stuff and, and all the time, right? But let's imagine your, your phone was the same organ. So your phone would be constantly telling you signals to, to react to, except you're conscious of all those signals. Mm. So you're constantly being bombarded with, hey, do something with me, do something with me, do something with me. Yeah. And unlike all the other stuff where we're unconscious about all those signals, because our body's sending us signals all the time, yeah. so we don't actually even have to think about it. Yeah. This is, is constantly telling us, like, do this with me, do this with me. This. Like, imagine if... if you were aware of every time, like a signal from your heart every time your heart would have, have to beat. I would argue the exact opposite of your point. Okay. And that the reason that we are sick, unhealthy, stressed is because our heart is sending us signals and we're not listening. And our organs are sending us signals and we're not listening. And our brain is sending us signals and we're not listening. And as soon as we do listen, life gets really, really, really but, easy. But I think we're not, listen we're not listening to every signal our heart's sending us. No, we couldn't. We, 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 we couldn't function that way. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying because it gets. It's, there's so many. No, I agree with you. Like on a on a high no, no, level, no. on a high level. If I agree it's with you. sending us signals, yes, then we are listening, right? Signal no, no, but, but, is but, but, alarm. But it's but as part of its function, it sends you signals all the time. Yeah, like it's constantly sending you signals. Like every heartbeat, it's sending you signals, and, and it's doing stuff through the nervous system and so on and so forth. I think we've got I, a different definition of the word signal. Then. Okay, maybe. But I think I agree with you in the sense of, let's say there are more arching patterns and we need to listen to those coming from our bodies. But essentially, you're, coming back to this, is your phone is, is you're getting on the baseline. It's sending you the signals on the baseline level. And I think that's what's really stressing us out is, is that all of a sudden we're, we're having almost like an organ constantly telling us, I need attention, I need attention, I need attention. And, and we've never been in that situation ever before. Sure. Though I do think for... Newer generations, I don't think they're, they're going to have that problem. Because they're born, born and yeah, raised yeah. with it. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. mindful of the fact that they're a cyborg. Yeah. Well, I don't think they're mindful. It's, it's, they just are a cyborg. You know, it's, it's not that they're even mindful of it. It's, okay. it's, that's just their, their that's being. Their, that's their default mode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. we're, we're the generation uh, that's transitioning. Being both sides. Yeah. Right? yeah. So exactly. maybe the generation that we're in has a special role to play. Being mindful of the fact that we transitioned into the cyborgness. I mean, I think there is this let's call it stewardship, that our, our, our generation at least can play. Not necessarily we have to, but I think we could be a steward to ensure that some of the values and missions 
of the older generation that were good. Certainly not all of them, because not certainly not all of them were good, but that we make sure that the the good ones do last, sure. and and remind people like, hey, and I think maybe coming back to your point, being like, hey, wait, there is this natural world that we need to connect into. Let's make sure we don't forget that. Sure. And I think there are certain things that we as stewards of being, let's call it the crossover generation, yeah. need to try to make sure that we make sure like, hey, we want to make sure that these values stick around yeah. and that we don't completely forget them in this transition to being cyborgs. Yeah. Sounds like if the mainframe goes down and our phone watch is no longer telling us, hey, you need to drink some water, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably time to go to bed Good now. Yeah. And that's the potential coming problem, isn't it? Is that you tune out to yep. the subtler information and wait for the beep, the vibration. Yep. The then, then you start. You still are a natural organism, part yep. of this ecosystem, yep. although and, you are. And you can't become reliant upon your Fitbit to tell you that you need to walk ten thousand steps today because you know there's no object measure that ever says you need to walk ten thousand <laughs> steps, right? right. I'm mindful of the time, and I want to finish off the first uh, sure. segment here with a little bit of personal question. So you are in an expat millennial entrepreneur. Sure. What attracted you to come to Denmark, and what could keep uh, someone with of your disposition here? Okay. So we'll do the first question because that's the easier question. Probably way more pragmatic than, than you were thinking. Basically, I've been out of the U.S. for most of the last 10 years and spent some time in, in Brazil, China, South Korea, and now I'm here. And between uh, the country I was at before, Denmark, where I was in China, and I spent a year at home in, in New York with my family, basically transitioning. And while I was doing that, I was working for my family. We have an investment firm. Based on my background, I was analyzing biotech companies. Sure. And while I was analyzing biotech companies, I, I noticed something where a lot of these biotech companies were being pushed by the technical founders, so kind of academic scientists. And I was seeing all this really cool technology, but I was getting very disappointed because it was very, very clear to me that none of these companies were going to be successful. Going a little bit full circle back to something I mentioned before, one of the obvious reasons that it was not going to be successful is they, they weren't running things properly from a business point of view. They were like running extra studies and, and, and doing all these things that were going to make it harder for them to get to market and costing all this money and, and so on and so forth. And it became really clear to me that there was a need for business-trained people with science foundations. And so once I saw this need and it became clear, and also it was just a little bit, honestly, within probably about two to three months of being home, I, it became clear to me that I wanted to get back out of the U.S. I've, I've, I've become an expat and I see myself as a citizen of the world and that definitely played a role in this. But basically... We once, touched upon that when we spoke. Yeah, yeah on, when, we, when we had Thomas on my show, we, we talked about, about that aspect and that definitely played a factor. But then I started looking like, okay, based on the fact that I want to do that, I want to get proper business training because I kind of only had a little bit of informal business training um, and also a lot of just shadowing my dad and watching how he did it, but also want to have the, the mix of the business and the science. And so then what I did is basically looked for programs around the world that offered that correct balance outside the U.S. I would argue that getting educated in higher degrees in the United States is a bad investment. Maybe not the knowledge, but the degree itself, I think, is a bad investment. The degree that I got would have probably cost me somewhere in the neighborhood of 110 to 130, 140K in the United States. I spent 28K. That was my <laughs> alcohol budget for two years. <laughs> but anyway, so, so then I basically did a research on, on the different programs around the world. Was kind of surprised to only find that, and more or less the program I ended to was essentially looking like an MBA for scientists or something that was a split Master's of Science MBA, 
found a couple programs. One of them was at the Copenhagen Business School. Applied, got in, came. Like, it was, it was, it was that kind of just, like, straightforward, pragmatic of, like, this is what I want to do. This is where they do it. That's where I'm going to go. It wasn't because of it's the happiest country. No, I, I, quite literally, I was looking at this and then I think the University of Melbourne and, like, one or two others. Because actually at the time, and I was kind of surprised about this, I think now there's more programs, but there were very, very few programs who had what I wanted. Do you think it's coincidental that they offer that kind of balanced program here in Denmark, or is it something about the society? I think it's actually none of those things. It's very, very direct. It's demand from the market. So they were seeing what you saw when you were doing the yeah, so, analysis? So, so I, th- I think so. In a little bit different way, but I think basically, and if you really saw it, and, and but more or less I think what, what actually had happened was that so in Denmark, they have a very, very strong biotech industry. Things like Nova Nordisk, Christian Hensen, Novozymes, Lumbeck. There's a whole bunch of great biotech companies here. And I think all those companies noticed this for themselves. And they said, wait a second. On our commercial side of the department, we need people with somewhat science understanding. And we need to sort of tr- get some scientists trained on the business side because we don't really have, yeah, we, we don't have the crossovers. These hybrids. We don't have these hybrids, exactly. And they were seeing that need because I think to some extent when you're working in these sort of deep tech industries, not that you need to be an expert, but I think you need to be relatively competent in the, the technical side. You don't have to be great, but you need to know enough that you can sort of have a conversation around it and you kind of have a general sense of what's going on. I mean, I'll give an example from a different context. But I imagine they were having the same types of things happen. When I was in New York, I was going to like investor lunches or dinners or whatever, where a biotech company would pitch. I don't know how much I should be talking about this, but whatever. Would be pitching their, their product. And I'd be in a room of, let's say, 100 investors. And 100 of the most successful investors in, in New York City and Wall Street, guys who generally I, I respect, they are very, very good, very great at what they do. And they would talk about it. And the minute that they would get into the science, I swear to God, you could have replaced the word science with magic. And it would have had the same effect on the room. And, and, and I would look at this and I'd be like, okay, so we just lost 95% of the room. And 95% of the room is basically just trusting the scientist that the scientist knows the science they're talking about. And these people who I highly trust in every other form would not have this type of diligence or care in any other investment that they would make. It would be much more like, oh, I need to understand and know what's going on. But they were kind of trusting in this environment and that doesn't make any amount of sense. I think you need it from both sides. You need it from the investment side and you need it from the company side. Uh, sometimes I'd go to business me- meetings with my dad and, and I could tell the minute we got to the science, his eyes was, would glaze over. And he'd be gone. Like, he'd just be out of the conversation. Yeah. And then I would be there just picking and prodding at the science because I actually knew what was going on. Starting to see sort of investment firms hire PhDs and et cetera, but I think there needs to be more of it, more hybrids. All right. So you're done with your education. Yes. Why are you still here? I feel like I'm about to regret the statement I'm about to make. But no, and the reason I, think... I ask is because we talk all the time, both the companies and you know at the macro level society, they're saying, how can we, re- we retain talent? I'm going to preface this of I'm most likely leaving at the end of the year. But what I stayed two years longer than when I graduated. And quite literally, and we kind of touched on this, the reason I stayed two years longer than after I graduated and I would have definitely probably left the minute after I graduated and, and moved on, um, was because I was dating someone seriously. Mm-hmm. And they really wanted to be here. A Dane? Not a Dane, actually. Okay. Uh, I actually met someone from Portugal here. Uh, but they were really happy. And I was like, all right, well, if you're really happy, I can be wherever. It's fine. Now that that's no longer a thing, uh, I'm moving on. Uh, and I, I honestly think that... And I don't know how you can systematically do this from a government level 
But I think the biggest draw for expats is partners, by far. I think that is the biggest reason to stay here as an expat. And I, I do think that if you're the type of person that, like, wants the... In the, in the States, we describe it as, you know, the 2.5 kids and the house and the picket fence and, yeah. and that whole life. Denmark might be one of the best places in the world for it. Raising a family. Yeah, yeah. raising the family and whatnot. And, and, and then usually what would be, let's say, the driver for actually raising your family here compared to somewhere else is that one of the partners either is Danish or really likes living in Denmark, right? right? I think for me personally and for my goals and objectives with my life, I'm actually not really sure what, what could keep me here. I, I don't think it has the things that I want. Every country has its own pluses and minuses. And for the things that I want out of my life, at least at this stage, I think is, 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 is a good way to preface it, it's not really there. Very, very often you get sort of a talk about you know, the, the metaphor of a, of a big fish in a small pond, I think happens a lot here. And as someone who, I mean, I'm from New York City, I'm, I'm you know, used to the ocean. Big fish in a small pond doesn't really work for me. But certainly that works for a lot of people. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong. Or if, if that's what you want, then great. And I think for a lot of people, that this is a really great country. I'm from Brooklyn in New York. Brooklyn is bigger than Copenhagen. So let's say I were to start a small business. Starting a small business and expanding it to Brooklyn, which let's say in Copenhagen terms would be like an equivalent of, I don't know, Nuremberg, I would scale it to more people than all of Copenhagen. And greater Copenhagen. Not even just Copenhagen, but greater Copenhagen. I, I tend to find, I, I think... So for you, it's more of a utilitarian kind of effect. The, you want to be able to affect the greatest amount. To a certain extent, but I think also, let's say, the amount of different interactions and experiences and types of people you can deal with as you're dealing with peoples in greater numbers. I think I grew up in New York, which is, in my opinion, even though I don't think I want to actually live there, the greatest metropolis on, on Earth because of its melting pot and, and different cultures and so on and so forth. But you can't really do that until you hit kind of a, a minimum threshold of numbers of people. And, and I think it's these interesting combinations of people, at least for me, is what makes life really interesting and fun and, and it allows you to do cool things and, and so on and so forth. And at least for me, that's not what Denmark is about. Fair enough. For me. Well, unless uh, you become Viking plunder here in the next uh, yeah. three months. Yeah. <laughs> well, so wait, is this, is, 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 is this going to go out within the next three months? <laughs> well, yeah. now so, uh, <laughs> well, now it is. So, wait, hold on. Can, can, we just, can we just put this on there? So, if there's a Danish woman out there that thinks they can convince me to stay in the next three months, I put that out as a challenge. <laughs> and I'd like to see, see what you can do. All right. <laughs> and my company will facilitate that process. <laughs> yes. All right. We're going to, on that note, take a little break and we'll come back with our quick fire round to round out the podcast. Today. Studying for an executive MBA at Henley Business School in Denmark is an intense and rewarding experience. If you want to achieve the best possible outcomes in business and in life, we can give you the skills and knowledge you need through the Henley MBA. For more info, visit henley.dk. Okay, we are back with our quick fire round. The questions will be quick fire, but the answers don't need to be. Do you have any uh, habits or uh, daily practices that you do to keep yourself mentally or physically sharp, or both? That's a really good question. I've actually gotten really, really focused on on trying to actually do habits, and I'm have been the best about keeping up with them. But that, that's a, a different conversation for another day. I think one of the the things that I really f- try to focus on to help me be mentally sharp is is trying to remain grateful and and really trying to practice gratitude every single day and make that a habit. And then I think it, it really just helps just how you view the world and interact with other people. My life is, has been fairly crazy. 
Um, and and I was on a, on a phone call with someone the other day, and, and they talked to me, and I'm not that old. Um, but they, they were like, you sound like someone who's wise well beyond your years. And I think it's just because I've done a lot. And and I like to practice gratitude within that of, of just reminding myself that I'm very, very lucky for the opportunities that have been presented to me. Uh, just simple stuff. like um, So I went and taught English in a number of countries around the world for a while. And quite literally, the opportunity that that was was because I happened to be born in a native English-speaking country. Like if I, if I wasn't born from one of like seven countries in the world, I wouldn't have had like in some of the places like an upper like an automatic like like no qualifications needed whatsoever upper middle class job as a 22 year old. That's insane. And 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 I I've been extremely lucky to get these opportunities and I and I think you just need to to remind yourself that like hey like there's sort of a so many different things would need needed to happen to get you to where you are today and to be in the position that where you are to be and be grateful for that. And do you have an actual practice of that? Is it pen and paper or? No, it's it just sort of reminding myself. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's more of almost like a mental meditation type of thing of, of just being yeah, like. I was going to say that's, you know, fundamental to mindfulness too. It's yeah. cultivating gratitude and yeah. having that as part of your. Yeah, and I, I, and I find that to be quite important uh, for me. And, and, and also just, just kind of trying to keep humble and keeping things in perspective and understanding that, you know, and I was kind of talking about this on, on, on part one of. of Understanding that, you know, I'm one of 8 billion people and we're on this small planet on the earth. And, and honestly, a lot of this probably doesn't really matter. Um, I think a different thing, and this is maybe a little bit different. Um, one of the things I'm trying to work on right now a lot and focus more on is, is Warren Buffett has this rule called the 525 rule. Um, and I recommend this for people and I, and I use this to help me. I mean, this is a little bit of a mental thing, but it's more of like a productivity thing. But I think the productivity becomes a mental thing. And what it basically says is, is take the top... 25 things that you want to do accomplish in your life, put them in a list and, and then rank them. And then what it says to do is, is essentially jot down you know, the top one to five. Then after number five, draw a line and basically only focus on the top five and six to 25 are just going to be distractions. And you sort of understanding the limits of what you have time and energy and resources to actually do and only focusing on a few things to get those done will actually in the end make you a lot more productive. And in the end sort of declutter your brain and help you make decisions of like what is really important to be doing right now. And, and I try, not that I'm doing that, but I'm sort of systematically trying to be like, okay, what are the really most important things? What are sort of, not that I've been writing this down, but I've been suggesting people to actually write it down. But what are kind of on an ongoing basis in my head, what are the top five? What are the real things that are important that I'm striving for? And knowing that, yes, there's also 20 other things that I'm striving for, but, but those are actually going to get me in the way of of doing it, and then once you sort of, you know, achieve something, then you can kind of readjust your list, and, and over time, you're going to actually end up succeeding on, on more of these things. I think that's actually really helpful of, of especially for someone who's ambitious, you, you have all these ideas, and you want to do all these things, and you want to accomplish a lot, but you actually have to kind of, this is also kind of circling back to something we said before, you have to start really narrow and really focused and get that one thing done. Thanks. Alex, have you ever uh, undergone any one event or experience that you would attribute with a major leap forward and Okay. Your performance or the person you become. So I'm about to send this in a direction that you probably weren't expecting. Um, but there, there's a big thing that, that had a huge, huge impact for me. Um, and I actually, uh, I just saw this. So I'll, I'll put this out there because it was really, really good. HBO just did a documentary called Standing in the Shadow of the Towers, Stuyvesant High School in 9-11. Um, that documentary was about my high school. 
And my high school, uh, this documentary was about my high school, uh, essentially my freshman year of high school. Um, That's when 9-11 happened. Which, which is when 9-11 happened, my high school was three blocks away from the Trade Centers. Um, I was able to, uh, able to is probably not the best way to describe that experience, but um, I was a first-hand witness to the events, and I could, I mean, we're, we're sitting, people can't see us, but I'll, I'll sort of describe it. We're sitting in a, in, a, in a room with glass windows. I could basically, like, look out the glass windows and watch the towers. Um, and one of the things that, that, that led to me to, to realize, and I think it was extremely formative for me, was it showed me very, very quickly, and I know I'm a 14-year-old, that life is short. And it's very, very uncertain, and we don't really know what's going to happen. And because of that, and it can essentially be taken away from you at any moment for reasons well beyond your control. Um, and that really started to lead me into, into a way of like, hey, if that's the case, then, then I should be doing the things that I really want to be doing. Um, and one of the things, I mean, and this might be a little bit different and, and it's connected into something a, a little bit else, is, for example, one of my personal objectives in life is to like never have a nine to five. And my point of view, and, and I mean, there's, this is probably a bigger, longer argument, is essentially, I don't think companies give a shit about you as an employee. And if you listen to people like uh, Nassim Talib, employment is a form of slavery. And that's a, a longer conversation, and I don't know if you want it. it that's, that's a quite detour. We, we could dive down that if you want. <laughs> Let's stop that. <laughs> um, but ultimately, for myself, I've decided that that's not what I want for myself. Um, and one of my objectives is to never to have to do that. Um, and to build up the processes to allow me to not have to do that. Mm. Um, and one of the things, and, and as I got older and thought about it, it was extremely grateful, but, but my mother worked for, was a computer programmer and worked for a number of banks that eventually became Citibank. They kind of kept getting acquired, eventually became Citibank. And I watched the relationship that Citibank had with her. And I think primarily what she was doing was doing that to support me and my sister. And, and as I became more of an adult, I've, let's say, realized that almost sacrifice for us and, and became more, more grateful for it. Um, but I just realized like, wait, but like, they don't give a, they don't give a fuck about them. It, it, it's, it's, it's very, you know, you're a cog in a machine. We're going to replace you like a machine. And, and I realized for myself that like, I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, that that's not part of my, and sort of taking those two things together of, of wait, life is short. And yeah. if, if you're not going to do it now, then when, when are you going to do it? Yeah. Because now is what you have and, and you don't have the future and you don't know it. And, and I personally believe honestly that, that, Security is a fallacy. That that the world is uncertain, and and security is something that we basically tell ourselves to give ourselves peace of mind, because most people are not able to deal with the uncertainty of the world. But if you sort of embrace the uncertainty of the world and be like, you know what, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I mean, I've been in a number of positions where like. Well, Becker says, and Ernest Becker, the famous cultural anthropologist, that culture is essentially uh, designed to ward off uh, fear of death. It's a psychological framework that we give ourselves to provide values, practices, and symbols that uh, distract us from the underlying worm at the, the core of our brain that tells us you are going to die. Sure. I mean, I think that's a different thing coming back to what I was talking about 9-11. I think that was a very, very quick thing to get me over the fear of death and then just realize, like, this is going to happen at some point, whether I like it or not. I mean. Definitely whether I like it or not. Like, I, I, I have no control over that process. And I know I've, I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, and I love all the kind of extreme. I've, I've done skydiving, bungee jumping, uh, base jumping, etc. I like the adrenaline rush. I like sort of looking 
feeling alive. Feeling alive, but also looking death in the face and being like, not today. Why do you get an adrenaline rush? I think it's a bit of that, of just like looking death in the face and being like, you know what, not today. Because you're scared of dying. That's why you get an yeah. adrenaline rush. Oh, sorry. I, I, didn't, I, I thought you were talking on the personal level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that was, the, for me, the greatest thing about skydiving was, I, it was un, I thought it was unbelievably cool. Um, I, I went, uh, I was living in Brazil at the time. And I was working with this company, and we, we basically, as like a team bonding trip, went skydiving. So we had like 20, 25 of us. And most people were really nervous, but I had done stuff earlier. I was like, oh, I'm really excited for this. And I actually quite literally like told the, you know, they, they, you do tandem like that. I told my guys like, what's the coolest thing that we can do? And he goes, I know what we can do. So we did like a backwards backflip out of the plane, which was super fun. But we're going through it. And I think the really interesting thing about the experience is like as you're free falling, your body is basically going, oh, fuck. Like, like, oh, fuck, like, we're falling to the ground, like, we're going to die, and, and your, your adrenaline system starts going through the roof, and you basically have two options. You can either fight it, and you get really tense and fight it, or you just kind of give in. And you go, all right, well, I've already jumped out of a plane, right? Like, <laughs> like if something goes wrong... I can't put the body back in the box. <laughs> like, exactly, like, like, you've opened that box, I'm already falling through the sky, you know, if this goes wrong, it goes wrong, and, and this is how I go out. Um... And then once you sort of accept it, it's unbelievably freeing. And you just go, okay. And it just washes through you. And, and your body just kind of accepts it and just goes, okay, like, there's so much adrenaline through your system. It's, I can't handle it. All right, I'll just let go. And, and I found it, it just it was the unbelievably freeing, relaxing experience if you're willing to get over that hump. Are you, have you ever taken a mindfulness course? Because you're identifying mindful qualities of acceptance, letting go, gratitude, without... <laughs> I don't know. Are you aware of it? No, no. I, I mean, I go in and out of things like, like yoga and I read a number of books. Okay. And right right now I'm reading something called, oh, I'm about to butcher the name of this. I think it's called The Wise Heart. I think it's it's a lot of, I've read a lot of spiritualism type things. And I think coming back around is, is for better or worse, um, post 9-11, I, I became very, very introspective for probably about a year and a half yeah. of just, just processing that. Yeah. And I kind of shut myself off from the world and... and really started to try to just make, make sense of things. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of led me down to some of these this, these various paths and, and, and understanding. And I think it's just, it's just very, I mean, I think these things are very important. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I don't know if that answered that question. But absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, did you have a, uh, a mentor or teacher growing up that you, um, that you remember that had a really big impact on your life? All right, I want to do two different things. You, specifically growing up or just in general? Just in general. All right, so I want to, I want to touch on two different things. So let's say on, on the philosophical side, I'm trying to think of what year this would have been, either my junior or senior year of high school, uh, I had a psychology teacher called Mr. Farbstein, um, and he was really getting into some of these things that we're talking about as well and, and kind of the overlap of like traditional like scientific side of psychology but in, also into these more spiritual and he was getting me into these things like, uh, I forgot who did this, but there was a, like a researcher who looked into like breathing exercises, but also the physiology of them. And then looking into like, like doing these things that are connected to meditation, but also looking at like, oh, there's actually like scientific backing behind them. And we were like listening to this tape where, where one side of the tape was like, you know, you can do things, for example, like control your energy by controlling your breath. So if you do fast breaths, you'll get energy. And if you do slower breaths, you'll calm down. That oversimplifying things, but stuff like that. But that was one side. And then on the second side, they'd say, oh, the reason why you, when you do fast breaths, it's because it changes this in your system and that speeds you up. And, and, and so, so the bridge of like the spiritual world and the bio, biological world, especially the psychological world, all came together. And he was one of the bigger 
influences on that. I think that was one. And, and I think a, a little bit, let's call it later in life, but I, 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 especially with the way that I do things now, I, I can't attribute any, any more to that is I don't think I ever learned so much about being a professional and, and working in business and whatnot at any point. Like, well, I, 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 I think I was joking about this recently. Um, so I spent a year shadowing my dad. And the amount that I learned shadowing my dad was way, way more valuable than like my MBA program. Way more valuable. Like, like hands down, like he should charge money for it. Like, like that should be a thing. And he, a little bit sort of for the standard people, a little bit unorthodox and he's kind of always been entrepreneurial, but, but just sort of the things about, and I've kind of put my own spin on it, but, but the things about like people do business with people at the end of the day. People don't do business with brands or companies or whatever. No, no. At the end of the day, you need to do business with another person. Um, and the relationships matter. And you have to connect with people on a human level and, and these types of things. And because of that, like you need to do business in the right way. Because if you're doing business in the wrong way, like you're not going to last long. People are going to find you out and they go, oh, this, this guy's a piece of shit. And, and I don't want to work with him. Um, and, and at the end of the day, like you're gonna have to work with others, yeah. um, and just principles like that, and and it's honestly been way more valuable than than to be honest. Um, I think I think to be honest, there was a certain level of, of my degree was just me being sort of in, in, in insecure with my practical knowledge and being like, oh, school should be a thing and I should get this and whatever and kind of a stamp. And at this point, I kind of just see that as a that was my ticket into Denmark. That was kind of the, the price of admission, so to speak. Um, and there's been a lot of other cool things connected to that, but the degree, it's, degree itself was at. Um, well, let's pivot there. The best piece of business or life advice you've ever gotten. Was it from your dad in that year? Or was it from another source? I mean, so that's definitely sort of the, this people do business with people, from my, I think, is, is a really big one. Or cyborgs do business with cyborgs. Cyborgs do business with cyborgs, exactly. <laughs> How, however, the thing about it is that people, the person part of the cyborg is the one that's making the decisions. Because we make decisions emotionally. That's another big thing of, of advice is we make decisions emotionally. We don't make decisions rationally. We usually justify them rationally. But at the end of the day, we make decisions emotionally. So you got to hit the emotions first. And so that means you got to hit the person first, not, not, not our cyborg robot friend. Um, so that's sort of a big one. Um, there was something, I'm trying to think there's something else I wanted to add, but I don't remember how to frame it. But a, a big one kind of connected, I'm about to kind of, poorly paraphrase this. Um, a guy that I've been following a lot right now is, is a guy named Gary Vee. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's probably the biggest digital marketer on the planet. He talks a lot about self-awareness and, and doubling, tripling down on your strengths. And I think that's been a huge advice to me and, and a little bit kind of what we were talking about before is the more that I've seen and, and I kind of give this advice to people is like, okay, like let's say you want to become an expert in something, become really good at it. That's great, and you'll be like top of your game. Let's say you want to move into a different area, then it's going to take you equally as long. Let's say it took you 15 years. It's going to take you 15 more years to become as good in this new area. Um, so what you could either do is try to do that, and what that will most likely do is take away your energy from, from the stuff you're really good at, or you could just partner with other people who are already really good at that. And, and I think this is coming back to sort of the, the gratitude thing is, is sort of understanding like, okay, I'm grateful that I'm really good. And I think most people, what you should try to figure out is what are the three to five things that I'm really good at? And I was actually talking to someone about this recently is 
most likely, if we if we try to think about like how many skills are there in the world that are like sellable, as it's she was saying there was like ten to fifteen. I think it's a much bigger number, but and if you start to think about like if you become very very good at like three to five of them, the specific three to five combinations of skills is probably going to be extremely unique. Just just if you look at math and permutations, right? You're going to end up with you know how many exact people on the planet have this exact mixture of these three to five skills. We're probably going to maximally get into the hundreds. And usually it's the, what we were kind of talking about before, it's the overlap and intersection of these different skills, which is what makes things interesting. So then you become like one of the few people on the planet that has this exact... Yeah, we're inter- all world class when we work out the three to five things, right? Right, yeah. If, if you, and so just figure out, okay, what are the three to five things that I'm an expert at? And in and, and, and its unique combination, focus on those three to five things and be like, okay, for all the other stuff, find the other people who... Are good at the other stuff. Wouldn't those skills be important as part of the uh, teaching um, college for teachers to be aware of, to educate the kids and say, look, we know that these 200 skills are vital in terms of your future success, and I can see that you align with some of these skills, and these are your core strengths that you should cultivate. Wouldn't that, from a pedagogical standpoint, make sense to uh, early, identify at a very early age what core strengths are to work on them? I think you're touching on a, a much more philosophical point which is what is the point of our education system? And, and I think... In, or how do in, we tailor it the best for the future sure. workforce? I mean, there, there's that as well. But I, I think depending on what your point of view of what our education system should be, I would agree that that's probably would be an interesting idea and an interesting way of doing it. When you start to look, for example, in my opinion, especially in, a, in, a, in an environment like the United States, and actually I think in a lot of places, uh, but specifically in the United States, our educational system is very much more designed to control young people and basically be almost a place for young people to go because we don't trust young people on their own in society for different reasons. And I think some of them are justified and some of them are not. But if you look at the United States in particular, like our schools literally look like jails. Like they, they more or less, you know, there's bars on the window. There's an outside area with a giant fence with barbed wire at the top. Like they look like jails. Well, I just saw the bulletproof backpack sold out. The bulletproof backpack, right? Like... And, and so once you start to realize that, that basically, I think, I would argue, that there is somewhat of a societal fear of what would happen if we kind of allowed young people free reign to do whatever. Yeah, that's and, where trust comes in. And, and where trust comes in. And so then you start to have a different aspect of, well, what is the education system really trying to do? Yeah. And, and I, I would argue there is more of a, there's a certain level of indoctrination that happens. There's a certain level of, Parents want to feel safe that their kids are somewhere while they have to go to work. So we want to make sure that the kids are contained, like that kind of level of control that's going on built into the system on top of the fact that we're like, okay, well, we should also try to create, I mean, I think where you're going towards is, is you know, proper members of society to some extent, right? Like in, in a way. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm just looking, I'm just exploring different ideas. Yeah. In that sector, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've worked in education for a while, and I, and I do think that, the, that there's a lot of issues. I think doing what you're talking about would definitely be more ideal. But certainly with the way that the education system is currently structured, that can be very, very difficult. I, I just think you can identify core strengths in human beings at an early age without it necessarily implying that others have weaknesses in that area. And I think we get sure. into, I think we get into that a lot where we level out uh, the individual and make everyone the same. 
Right. Yeah. By but, saying, but by saying someone has these core strengths, it doesn't imply that you know but, you should be fixed into this box. Sure. But I think from a, let's think of it. I think that's a. I don't disagree with you, but I think from like a very practical point of view, yeah. is let's say I don't know. You identify this at six, yeah. and now you have a classroom of 20, 30 people or whatever it is. Yeah. Now we've identified that every single student in the room has a unique combination of three to five strengths that they need to be, whatever, they need to be facilitated so they can help them grow. How are you about to run that classroom? And, and I, think, I think that's the, you know, on a very practical level, that, that becomes a challenge for the education system of, of all right, I mean, how do we teach? But back third... to love the problem, that's a problem that I love taking a look at. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I love, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I've been in education since like 2005. I, I'm actually, as an aside, like very passionate about like how do we, create the next gen of education because for, for my point of view it's it's very very broken and if you look at the the history of it it was built for the industrial revolution and and built for creating people who fit into the industrial revolution society and that's not the society we live in anymore and i i would actually argue and this this, this might be a fairly bold statement um except in very very progressive jurisdictions i would actually argue in a lot of places sending your kids to school is hurting them more than helping them for the future. That, that is my personal opinion of, of anywhere that's running a more traditional setup. You're actually hurting your kids by sending them to school than helping them. We're, we're going to have to have a bonus podcast about the educational sector. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, it's fascinating. We simply uh, don't have time today. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, that's... We'll, we'll talk. Sure. Do you um, have a book or books that, uh, that most impacted you? A whole lot of them. Um, I would recommend anything by Nassim Talib. Um, if you're not familiar with him, he's like a quant trader on Wall Street, which means basically he uses algorithms, uh, kind of devises algorithms to, to make investments. Um, but he's written all these books basically about the effect of randomness and uncertainty. Uh, one is called Black Swan, one is called Anti-Fragile. Those books are amazing. I strongly recommend you, you read them. Uh, another one is, uh, what is his last name? Um, this guy, Jocko... Willink. Thank you. Willink wrote this book called Extreme Ownership. Um, that book is fantastic, all about how Navy SEALs lead. And it's it's very much about, like, no one else... Oh, yeah, in, I heard him on Sam Harris's podcast, Jocko. Yeah, Jocko, yeah. really, really interesting guy. And, and they wrote this book, and it's all about, you know, no one else is going to take responsibility for what you do but, but you. Leif, Leif Babin, I believe. Co-author, John Willink and Leif Babbitt. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I just read this other one. I can't think of the author, but there's a great book called Tribal Leadership that I sh- I strongly recommend. And I, I was actually something. Just read it actually. I, I read it not that long ago, um, which was kind of reminding me of something you mentioned earlier about how you should always have conversations in three. Three. Yeah. That that's a big one that comes out of there. Um, a really really interesting one that I got into recently is called Never Split the Difference, which I don't is know that one. it's it's a negotiation book. Um, basically a former, uh, I think it's FBI or CIA, I think it might be CIA, a hostage negotiator, wrote a book about negotiation. It's actually fairly similar in setup to extreme ownership in terms of structure. Um, I recommend that one. Um, I'm trying to think of like other, like, like recently I've been reading a lot of like sort of businessy style stuff. So that's kind of what's off top of head. I'm trying to think of older stuff that would be really interesting. Um, I used to read a lot of Robert Anton Wilson. He's a really interesting guy, kind of a contemporary of people like Timothy Leary and whatnot of the 60s, got really into sort of the intersection of like spirituality, 
culture, science, and how those things interplay with each other. And one of the things that I was for a really long time, and, and still am, I shouldn't say, was almost like what I would call a spiritual biologist, if that makes sense. And sort of understanding that if you look at things like... You should read Altered States and Altered Traits by Daniel Goldman and Richard Davidson. Okay, I'll check that one out. Yeah, the science of uh, meditation, looking at it from a neuroscientific perspective. Um, but coming back on, on this sort of spiritual biology angle, um, what I started to realize, if you understand what, what religions, in my opinion, fundamentally are, is they're storytelling devices to help us make sense of natural phenomenon that exists in the world. Um, but at various points of time, we didn't actually know how to describe them, so we just used stories to substitute. And, and I think simple things would be like um, a number of religions like Judaism or, or, or Islam have things like kosher or halal. And if you look at the roots of that, basically those are just like practical pieces of advice because back in the day, like if you ate pigs, we had, the, I forget what the worm's called, but, but that was actually a serious problem and we, we didn't cook our food properly. And so they said, you know, instead of us just like not eating pigs, we need to justify a reason to not eat pigs. And we said, well, God said it and, and so on and so forth. Or if you looked at like shellfish, things about around red tide, you get all these things. But when you get to start into, let's, let's talk about like Indian traditions around things like reincarnation and, and start to look at that as, as a storytelling mechanism, um, you start to look at things that like, okay, so if you look at like Newton's laws, you start to understand that energy is not created or destroyed, it just changes form. And if you start to think about that about like on a molecular level, that means like, I don't know, the water that we've been drinking was probably in us like years ago and was probably in dinosaurs way back when and so on and so forth. So the physical molecules like don't disappear. And if you look into like quantum states, you start to understand that like once molecules are in, let's say our body or in a substance, it has an actual effect on that molecule moving forward. So essentially, let's say the carbon atom that was in my body that was in a Tyrannosaurus rex has some effect from being in, in a Tyrannosaurus rex. So I don't know. It, it gives me some... I don't know if this is true. This is definitely something I'm making up. Short arms. It's, it's giving me, yeah, short arms, T-Rex <laughs> powers. And I feel like to some extent, us as humans kind of intuit these types of things, but we didn't really know how to explain them for, for most of history. And so we, we came up with stories. And we came up with stories like reincarnation, um, for example. Um, and, and, and that's where I think there's a lot of overlap with these things. Of, of This is just devices for us to understand the world. And when we don't have other ways to understand the world, then we come up with stories. Yep. Because we kind of see that these phenomenons exist. Uh, but we don't know really yeah. how to explain them. And until we've come up with a better explanation, yeah. then, then we, we from, stick to stories. I think we from see the rationality. And, um, and coming from that, actually, another person I strongly recommend is uh, no, all of Noah, Noah Harari's books. Uh, Homo Deus, Sapiens, um, 20, 21 Problems for the 21st Century. Yeah. Um, those books are really great. He gets a lot into this kind of symbology and, and, and kind of how cultures evolve. And We could probably talk all day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm very mindful of the time. And I want to wrap up the podcast today with our final question, which we asked to all of our guests. And that is, what do you think that someone like you can teach Denmark? And what do you think Denmark can teach the rest of the world? Okay. Two-parter. Sure. So I think the first part of what someone can, like me, can teach Denmark is I think one of the things that's happening right now is I think Denmark's going through a bit of an identity crisis. And the reason that it's going through a bit of an identity crisis is because all these people from other cultures are coming here and they're, they're trying to face what does it mean to be Danish? 
Uh, and I think one of the things that they could learn from me from, from all the places that I've been is that actually, more or less, people are the same everywhere. And, and you don't actually need to fear these people from other countries because at the end of the day, most people want to put food in their belly, have a roof over their head, have, have a good life for their children. Like, um, there's this really cool thing. I, I recommend you check it out. It's called um, Dollar Street. Uh, it was created by a group called Gapminder. And what they showed is they had like a street where the addresses were the monthly salaries of the people. So if you, you, if you were at address one, that means you, you made like $1 a month and so on and so forth. And what it actually showed is that people who are in similar financial situations, no matter where they were in the world, actually lived a similar lifestyle compared to, let's say, their neighbor who is richer than them. So let's say if I was making $100 a, a month yeah. and my neighbor was making 200 and I'm in Denmark, my life was actually more similar to someone making $100 a month in Thailand or Brazil or the United States than it was to my neighbor. Um, and that's what they found. And I think that's what's really interesting. And I think Denmark can learn from that of, of like, like, let's not fear these people coming in. They're just like us, but they're just like us from, from another place. Um, in essence, in the way that I see it, I mean, we're, we're all basically cousins. To, and I forget how many degrees you go back. Second but it's, cousins. Second cousins, yeah. <laughs> hey, not close enough where it causes problems, but uh, we are all cousins. And I forget how many degrees you go back, but from I think... Sub-Saharan Africa. From Sub-Saharan Africa. And, and, it, and you don't even have to go back that far and, and, and whatnot. And, and we should treat each other like we're all cousins. And, and we should be open about that. So I think that's the biggest thing that Denmark could learn from something, someone like me. Um, the flip question is, is what, what Dan Denmark can really teach the world, I think really comes, comes across to this, this sort of work-life balance, this, this hoogly, these types of concepts, just really in the sense of, of there's more to life than being productive and the nine to five and and all these types of things that you see in a lot of places like the United States. Um, and, that, and that you need time for all of that. Or also as well that like, it is a, a country's job to support its citizens and, and give them the proper needs that they have. And, and I, I think those are, are great concepts that should be exploit, uh, exported everywhere and, and would be very, very helpful um, to other societies. Fantastic. Mr. Alex Feldman, it's been a true pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, before we go, uh, where can our audience find you and keep up with your projects? You can probably find me everywhere. Um, oh. What would be the best way to find me? Uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I think it's just Alex W. Feldman, if I'm not mistaken. Alex Feldman on LinkedIn. No uh, D. What? No D. Yeah, there's no <laughs> D. It's F-E-L-M-A-N. Like, like we said in the beginning, my family was too cheap for the D. Um <laughs> I hope, yeah, whatever. They might listen, they might not, I don't know. They'll probably laugh. My sister will laugh. Um, I'm writing this company called Startup42 Media. Uh, we have a Facebook page, we have a LinkedIn page, we have startup42media.com. Um, you can certainly find me on there. Uh, currently, I'm in Denmark, so if you want to catch me on the streets of Denmark, you can find me here. But I also do a lot of public speaking. I'm about to go to New York, uh, and then soon London, and soon Switzerland. I'll be at Slush. Uh, I might be in Saudi Arabia for the ArabNet conference. Um, I don't know. You can find Honestly, you can find me if you want to. It's, it's that simple. <laughs> that, I'm not that, difficult. That includes you, Danish women. You have three months clock uh, ticking. I mean, that, that's the challenge. <laughs> you need to find me to convince me to stay. Um, uh, all right. And on that note, we're going <laughs> to call the day. And to our audience, don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. 
please help us by rating, reviewing, sharing, whatever you can do. <laughs> Until next week, see you on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up your printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.